This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. After quite an extended delay and a very choppy schedule the last month or so due to the Jewish holiday schedule, we are now back to a weekly release schedule and really excited for what lies ahead. First of all, we have our special 100th episode coming up in just a few weeks, around a month, with a really fun surprise, as I've alluded to previously. Stay tuned for that. And meanwhile, I've also been booking a whole new register of guests that I am very, very excited about. A really top-flight cadre of personalities that I think all of our listeners will find fabulously intriguing and inspiring. Not going to drop any hints yet as to who those may be. Got a little bit of room for suspense and also still solidifying with some of those guests. But we are scheduling quite a few interviews over the next month to six weeks to stock up for the winter ahead. Meanwhile, this week is a really exciting episode for a couple of reasons. First of all, Dina Kraft has a wonderful personal story, her own professional odyssey. But more than that, she is the host of her own podcast through Hadassah. Hadassah, of course, being one of the premier hospitals in the Jewish world, based out of Jerusalem, and also is the epinomous and legendary women's organization that is one of the staple institutions in the Jewish world. Well, Hadassah has its own podcast, and it's a really cool podcast, trying to promote some semblance of coexistence, cooperation, integration on the ground between Israelis, Jews, and Muslims or Palestinians generally and what they do is they feature all kinds of situations scenarios within Israel in which Israelis or Jewish Israelis are working alongside or together with their Palestinian cousins or Israeli Arab cousins and so forth and regardless of the complicated and difficult political situation they are looking to highlight the places where life is functioning peacefully, where things are working, and to call attention to those areas rather than to all the friction, which certainly exists, but which we tend to focus on exclusively, both in media coverage and in our own sense of the situation there. So Dean is the host of this podcast, The Branch. She has together an entire crew that works behind the scenes. It is a podcast with outstanding production quality, rivaling the really top-notch efforts of secular news outlets. For those familiar, it's patterned really off of shows like This American Life, which is an NPR podcast, and it's really worth a listen. And what's exciting to me about this particular episode is that it represents a real effort on behalf of a small group of Jewish podcasters, and I've referenced this before, who are trying to sort of cross-pollinate, cross-promote, and help each other by introducing each of our disparate audiences to wonderful offerings that they may not be aware of within the Jewish podcasting landscape. And so this show this week is a particular effort to promote the Hadassah podcast and for them to do the same for Jews You Should Know. Speaking of Jews You Should Know, you can follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram, at Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you are listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, whatever platform you prefer, please hit subscribe there so that these episodes will come to your inbox, so to speak, automatically. As well, please give us a rating and review and share the existence of this podcast with others you may know, either those who are into podcasts generally and are just looking for another great listen, or for the 
74% of Americans who do not yet listen to podcasts on a weekly basis. There's a huge market share out there waiting to discover this medium and no better way to do so than through the window of Jews You Should Know. And now to my conversation with the host of The Branch, the Hadassah podcast, Dina Kraft. We are here with Dina Kraft, a longtime journalist and currently host of The Branch, a fabulous podcast, relatively new podcast being put out by Hadassah, covering really interesting stories of collaboration between Jewish and Arab residents of the land of Israel, working together on all kinds of different diverse projects, each episode featuring a different one of them. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But first of all, how are you, Dina? I'm doing well, thanks. Great to be with you this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Dina, take it from the top. Tell us a little bit about where you are from, where you grew up, and so forth. Yeah, I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, um, not far from where you live, I understand. And I grew up in a household, uh, I guess called it, in some ways a mixed marriage. Um, my mother comes from New Zealand, <laughs> and my father comes from Michigan. Um, my mother uh, was the daughter of refugees from Nazi Europe. They came over to New Zealand in 1939. She was just a year old on what they say was one of the last boats out of Europe at the time. My family um, were living in Italy, but they were not Italian Jews. They were from various parts of what was the former Habsburg Empire, so from Hungary and from Austria. And luckily, in their case, Mussolini had passed the law that all Jews that were not of Italian descent had to leave. There huh. was no waiting. Yeah, it was actually fortunate in their case. So although they had Italian relatives um, who did stay and ended up living in hiding, not in hiding, but under with false papers and survived the war that way, they had no choice. They had to leave. So, um, and my, at that point, it was very difficult to get a visa. Um, but my grandfather, who had a um, cafe in Trieste, the legend, the family legend goes, also had a map of the world hanging in the bathroom stalls. And he saw that New Zealand was the furthest place from Europe and decided that's where the family would go. And so they were lucky to get visas. And so my mother and her sister and uh, later her younger brother grew up in New Zealand. Well, not the first time I've heard that New Zealand map kind of story, actually. I've heard people say that before. can imagine in that era just trying to be so far away from what was going on. Right, right. I mean, it was really just, you know, my grandmother was a Zionist and had wanted to go to what was then Palestine. And my grandfather said, absolutely not. That's too close to the fighting. You know, it's too close to, too close to danger. New Zealand was an amazing refuge for them. Um, now, pretty much everybody from that family, except for my uncle, um, has moved abroad. Uh, my mother ended up in, in America and, and my brother and father live there, but the, most of my grandparents' grandchildren actually live in Israel today. Incredible. So her dream was ultimately fulfilled through her descendants. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I guess, yeah, I had not thought of it, but yeah, that, that's one way of looking at it. Beautiful. So what brought your mother to America? How did she meet your father? Yeah, it's a good story. My mother, um, although she was very grateful to New Zealand and all of the bounty it brought their family and the, and the safety, most of all, and the education and friendship, um, always felt like a refugee, always felt like they were very far from the rest of the world. And um, she grew up in a youth movement, the Habonim youth movement, and also wondered what Jewish boy she might marry because she knew all of them already. Um, <laughs> But I think also had a bit of a wanderlust and, you know, New Zealand is still, you know, far from a lot of other places in the world, beautiful as it is. Um, but then it felt really far. And so she wanted to see the world and she saved up her money. And um, at the age of 22, I believe, in the early 1960s, uh, set off and actually went back on a boat all the way back to Italy, which is where she had been born and where they had fled from. And um, with all the money she'd saved up on a paper route <laughs> from the kid, bought a Lombretta motor scooter and motor scootered all around Europe, um, went to Israel, re reunited with those relatives from Italy um, that she had last said goodbye to before she could remember when she was a baby. And also her sister who had since settled um, in Israel and kind of checked out life in Israel, kind of realized it wasn't going to be for her hopped back on her motor scooter, went on uh, across Europe and ended up in London 
as a New Zealand citizen, she's Commonwealther, so was allowed to live in England. And so she lived in London. And um, my father at that point, who grew up in Detroit, Michigan, the son of first generation American Jews, um, who also had a case of wanderlust and wanted to be a foreign correspondent and was based in London, met my mother in London. So, so from New Zealand to Michigan, they met in London. So I owe that city my existence. Beautiful. So where did it go from there? You said you grew up in Maryland. Yeah. Yes. No, the path to Maryland took a little time to get to. So yes, yeah, so they met in London and married in London. Um, but uh, my father was then posted in, to Africa. So uh, first to what was then Zaire, which is now the Congo, and later on to uh, what was then Rhodesia, but it's now Zimbabwe. So they were posted in Zaire. And a young couple, my father was working for UPI as a journalist. So that's, you know, where the bloodlines go to journalism through my father. And my mother was his able assistant and guide. And as well, she spoke better, much better French than he did, um, which was helpful in, in Zaire. And my father took some very blurry photos of a cabinet, um, cabinet ministers being hung by Mobutu, who was then the head of Zaire, the sort of ruthless dictator. And he was hanging these cabinet ministers and he took some I said they had kind of blurry photos, but they went on the wire and were published abroad and somehow connected back to him. And he was taken in by the authorities. And my mother thought she was never going to see her young husband again. And uh, to this day, credits the CIA for the fact that he was only mildly roughed up and told to leave the country. So they were expelled from Zaire and uh, went to, you know, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, and reported and lived there for a while. And then went back to London. And that's where my brother was born. And at a certain point, my parents decided to go back to the States and, and uh, move to Washington, D.C. What did they do in Washington? So my father continued to be a journalist. He worked then at that point. I don't know if it was, he worked for UPI and Reuters. I think at that point he worked for Reuters, covering Capitol Hill and Congress. And uh, my mother was a teacher. And so, yeah, so I was born in Silver Spring and... Uh, lived in the same bedroom that I was brought home from the hospital to until I went off to college, University of Wisconsin, across, across the country. But yeah, but it was really a great place to grow up. A really, you know, having, having on the one hand, the sort of the, the, the suburban comforts, you know, of, you know, a park across the street and lots of friends around, but also being just very, very close to the edge of D.C. and having all of D.C. and what it has to offer and the free museums and the culture but also a very diverse part of Silver Spring. I grew up like on the border of Silver Spring and Tacoma Park. And it was just my, believe it or not, 30th high school reunion at Montgomery Blair High School, which wow. I unfortunately wasn't in. And, but, you know, it was just a place where, you know, it was majority minority and everybody got, a. I mean, I don't want to be like two rose colored glasses, but as I recall, people just got along and it wasn't exceptional to get along. It was just normal. And uh, we had many different languages spoken at Blair and people from, you know, El Salvador and Vietnam and black and white. And it was just, it was just normal. And there wasn't even a, when I was growing up in the 1980s, there wasn't a word called multiculturalism or diversity. I'm sure those words existed, but they were not in our vocabulary then. You know, it was just Blair. It was just normal. And it was just um, a kind of an island of sanity in a way. <laughs> and um, I remember going to college and I was like, oh, why is everybody white? You know, like, why is it so different? Why is it, it was just very jarring. And then realizing and appreciating how special it was that, you know, people, there was genuine friendships and genuine connection and, and people didn't make a big deal of it. It was just normal. Right. So it sounds like journalism was kind of a family vocation. It was in the blood. Your father was a journalist and then you decided to become a journalist as well. Yeah. But my earliest memory, my mother, my mother's a teacher, but she, but she's always very involved in the news. I mean, my, my memories of, having dinner and often it was around the time of like the CBS evening news, my mother off listening to the news and being enraged about something, you know, <laughs> and Dan rather about whatever it was. But um, one of my earliest memories is my parents, you know, every Sunday morning, my dad and I would go get the newspapers at the local newspaper stand. And this old Russian couple would give me these toffee treats. My dad would like load up with this pile of newspapers. In those days it was, the Washington Post, even in the early, early days, something called the Washington Star, which no longer exists, um, the Baltimore Sun, and the New York Times. And we'd come home with all of these four newspapers. And then the new, we had a pretty large living room floor, and it would just be blanketed in newspapers. And my parents would pack across, you know, and today you share a story. They were literally sharing the story just by passing it back and forth across the living room floor. 
And so, and the news programs were always on and, um, you know, Watergate happened when I was very, very young and my father was covering it. And I don't remember, but according to my mother, she, although she was not even a U.S. citizen yet, she still had her just a New Zealand citizenship. She was appalled what was happening. And she took me in a stroller and my brother by the hand and claims to be the first person outside of the White House with a big poster that said, impeach Nixon. <laughs> and, um, and then from there, you know, my, my father was covering the Watergate hearings and she would bring him you know, dinner and a flask of coffee. And I would sit there in my stroller, apparently listening or sucking my thumb, whatever it was. So yeah, it was definitely in my blood. The news was always in my blood. And then when I was in high school at Blair, I joined the school paper and I really have not stopped doing journalism since I was about 16. Incredible. And what, what was the Jewish experience like in your home growing up? Yeah. So I grew up in a, went to a conservative synagogue um, called Temple Israel um, and we had a really close group of friends through a Havura that was formed in the synagogue for, you know, when I was a little kid for parents, for families with young children. And to this day, you know, one of my best friends is from that Havura and our families are still very close. And I went to Hebrew school. I went to Jewish day school first, um, from kindergarten through third grade. And I think that gave me a really solid grounding. I never really questioned having a Jewish identity because I think those years it was planted so firmly and so lovingly in me. And I remember loving reading and interpreting the stories from the Tanakh and the Bible. And I loved, I don't know, I loved the holidays and I loved even learning about Israel. I remember little kibbutz, I remember making a little kibbutz diorama in the first grade. I remember my when my first my first grade teacher was still alive, Mrs. Lowy, she had a tattoo on her arm. She was a survivor. She taught me my first words of Hebrew. Um, yeah, it was just like a very, it was very positive, but it was also totally understood. It was nothing like about a choice. It was just sort of who we were. And our family was not observant in, you know, in terms of, you know, we're not Shomer Shabbat, but we always had Shabbat dinner. We always, we went to services pretty regularly. And, you know, a lot of the time I was outside of service, just hanging out with my friends and <laughs> in the court. I just remember being very positive um, and very warm. And yeah, so then once I left day school, I was going to Hebrew school and good friends and connections there. Um, yeah, and I'd gone to Israel when I was four years old for a cousin's bar mitzvah. My memories of it were mostly being sick and being in the old city and being in some part of the Arab quarter and someone gave me this tomato with olive oil and it like soothing my throat. That was one of my main memories of Israel. <laughs> and actually I remember I was, when I, although I went to day school, um, when I was in nursery school, I would, went with the neighborhood kids to the neighborhood nursery school, which was a, a church. And I remember um, learning a lot about Jesus at the church. And I remember being very excited to be in Nazareth because I was like, oh, this is where Jesus <laughs> lived, you know? But I remember very specifically that early in the morning, when we would sing, Jesus loves me, I, I was only four, but I knew he didn't love me. I didn't, it was like a negative thing. I just knew he wasn't mine, you know? So I remember going, coming over going, yes, mm, loves me, you know? Uh, um, so it's interesting, like how the identity, you know, was there, like without even having words for it, but just knowing, okay, that, but that's, that's not mine. It's okay, but it's not mine. But I remember being a celebrity coming back to my church nursery school because the teacher said, Dina, just was in Israel where Jesus lived. And that was sort of fun. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was um, just, you know, part of who I was. And then when I went to college, you know, a lot of my friends had been in youth movements and whatnot, and I wasn't. Um, and I, you know, my understanding of Israel was mostly from my parents' very deep involvement in terms of just following the news. My dad at that point had moved from, um, he went from journalism to government and, and, and dealt a lot. Um, he was in the, worked as a Senate staffer and a congressional staffer working on Middle East issues. So, you know, he would go on trips to the Middle East and bring me back dolls. But my dolls were, were Israeli dolls and they were Syrian dolls and they were Saudi dolls because that's where the trips that he went to and Lebanese dolls. And, and looking back, I hadn't really thought about it until now, but like, you know, that I'm doing this podcast about Israelis and Palestinians and Jews and Israelis. In some ways I was sort of connecting those dots even as a kid through my dolls and making up these stories for them. Very interesting. Um, so where did your own journalism career start to take you? You were at Wisconsin, you were a happy badger. And uh, I imagine at some point you uh, looked to find a job of your own in the profession. Where did you go? And I know you've had a lot of really high profile and interesting stops along the way. Describe for us some of those sure. stops. 
Sure. Well, so, so in some ways, the stops began at University of Wisconsin in Madison. I was on the school paper. So one part was I was my freshman year. I was covering one of the biggest stories on campus, which at the time was uh, an attempt that University of Wisconsin would have a sister school in the West Bank. And so there was this sort of tension between the Jewish students, some of the, not Jewish students, but some of the Jewish students who were on part of an organization called Campus Coalition for Israel at the time. And they were against having the sister school for whatever reason. So I was covering that. But before I was even covering that, my very first month at University was at Madison, Edward Said came to speak on campus. Oh, lovely. Columbia University professor. And the topic was the peace process. It was 19, gosh, it was the fall of, fall of 89. So wow, so way before Oslo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was the beginning, you know, it's even before Madrid. But at any rate, the topic was like peace efforts. And I, I really was quite green. I didn't really, you know, although I grew up in this house, a lot of stuff, tough, a lot of discussion on the Middle East. I didn't really know nuances or anything. But when he spoke, he was speaking to my mind, like kind of very one-sidedly. And, and there had been an article that day in the New York Times about collaborator killings, um, Palestinians who allegedly worked with the Israeli authorities being killed by, um, in this case, Fatah members. And he was a member of Fatah. So I asked him about that article and I said, you know, any comment on the collaborator killings? And he was not happy with the question. And it was a a pointed exchange. And I just kept saying, can you deny that these killings are happening? And it was incredible. Like the whole room was sort of cheering at him for him, I thought, and kind of jeering me. And, and, and I didn't really know. It was really taken aback because it was my first time putting my foot in the incredible the word is, but you know, like storm of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I was 18 years old. I was brand new on campus. I just put my foot into this thing. I had no idea how, how intense and fiery it was. And then afterwards, I was a little bit shaken. And people were coming, oh, you're, you're a little you know, petite student. You stood up to Edward Said. And I, again, I didn't even know who Edward Said was exactly, you know, in the, in the big picture. The other student came up to me and said, it's you give Jews on campus a bad name. And I said, you know, he was for like the, from the, uh, some version of a Palestine solidarity committee or something. And I, I was like, no, I was just trying to like, I actually, I, I don't, I'm not left and I'm not right. I was just trying to, I didn't even know those words were, I don't think at that point, I really was just like, I'm just trying to ask him a question, you know, an honest question, you know, just to bring in some like critical debate in here. Anyway, I remember getting on my bicycle and riding back to the dormitory in tears um, and being so stunned and kind of, you know, by the whole event of the evening and just the intense emotions is unleashed on both sides of the fray. And I, I think that was the night it was the seed was planted in me that I had to go to Jerusalem and try to figure out this place. And I had always thought that I was going to go to Paris or to Rome. I always knew I'd go somewhere for my junior year abroad, you know, and Israel was completely not on the radar. It was always going to be, you know, somewhere European. But that, that night I understood that I had to go to, I began to understand that I'd have to go figure out this place for myself. And I have to say, all these years later, I don't know how much more clarity I have. I'm still trying to figure it out. But I, I think that like occupies my mind most is sort of why all this hatred, why all this division, where, what, is, what are the historical roots of it? And what does it look like on the ground now? Yeah, the, the, the questions just become more sophisticated, but right. not necessarily easier to resolve. Yeah. And so to answer your question, so I Eventually, um, so I, my junior year, I did spend in Israel, and um, I was in Jerusalem, and I uh, started interning for some the U- UPI, kind of following my father's footsteps, which is now a not a defunct news service, but mostly a defunct news service. But at the time, it was more more of a presence. And I had this wonderful the bureau chief named Jonathan Furziger, kind of took me under his wing, and um, sort of introduced me. I had been writing, you know, for my college paper, but I feel like kind of brought me up a notch of level in my writing. I remember him sitting me down and saying, does your lead sing? You know, you really have to engage people from the very first moment, read your lead aloud. What does it sound like? And also helped me kind of get a first of my infatuation with like Israel and kind of be, have more like critical thinking and whatnot. And interestingly, you know, we can talk about more later, but one of my more recent episodes of the podcast was interviewing Jonathan, that oh. long ago bureau chief the UPI. And somebody I met back then, which was um, a man named Sa- Saud Abu Ramadan, who he worked with then and continues to work with, who was his stringer and co-worker in Gaza. Anyway, um, so yeah, so that was my first foray into sort of covering Middle East stuff was as an intern. But before I went back to college, I was in Israel and I, um, sort of a, maybe a, a side story, but I went to go look for a grave of my great uncle who had come from Salzburg, Austria, my grandmother's brother in 1920 
as a young idealist Zionist Jewish settler, not knowing what he would find when he got there. And um, he was part of a very intense commune in the Galilee of people that went on to become sort of founding father type figures in Israel, went into politics. Anyway, so I, I uncovered these, I went to his graves, grave site, which is um, on the shores of Kinneret. He died very young. He was only in Israel for a year. He was 19 um, years old and he actually committed suicide um, oh. after several malaria. He had malaria at least three times from what we know. And uh, he was also very disillusioned with uh, the Zionist experiment as, we, as I learned later reading his letters back home. So I uh, went to look for his gravestone that my grandmother had so lovingly told me about. She'd always, every Yom Kippur, she would take out his letters and pour over them. He was like her beloved older brother that was brilliant and um, was supposed to be some great figure in the state of Israel, but did not live to become that person. Um, anyway, so I went to his gravestone and um, I knew one thing from my, his grandmother, my grandmother, that his gravestone was, part of it was missing to symbolize that his life was incomplete. And so I found that corner piece indeed missing, but was also miss, was also in the grave was this bizarre uh, engraving of a mosquito and, and the mosquito was uh, etched into the gravestone and it was stinging this face and this face was a face of a, a demon, a devil figure. So that launched the whole sort of query of like, why is there a devil in my great uncle's gravestone? Um, so um, that ended up leading to some research, my senior college thesis and more depth into sort of the early pioneers, the early Israeli, the early, the early Jews who decided to like leave everything in Europe and start this crazy adventure and to, re, you know, to, to rebuild a Jewish homeland as they saw it. Why was there a devil? Um, it's an ongoing question. There's different interpretations. They kept a communal diary where they talked a lot about madness and kind of crossing the edge between sanity and madness. And the mosquito was sort of stinging this face, this bean-like figure. So, and we know that malaria did drive, there's something called cerebral malaria, which drive, does drive some people mad. You know, that's one theory. It's also a theory that it uh, was a symbol of um, Adi Gordon, who was a, a influential Zionist thinker at the time, who was sometimes called the devil by, I don't know, the devil exactly, but he, questionable things about him. Um, the, he was Ernst, my great uncle, whose name was changed to Natani Kar when he lived in, lived there, um, which means Nathan the farmer. He uh, apparently committed suicide over a copy of the Brothers Karamazov with a chapter of the Grand Inquisitor, which is a debate between um, Jesus and the devil. So there's a lot, they, they were very wow. intense young people, incredibly ideological, such a literature, Russian literature, German literature. And so there's a lot of different ways. It's, it's still a bit of a mystery is the bottom line, which I'm still, um, believe it or not. Um, Unreal. Of. But, uh, what a story. We, yeah, it'll be 100 years next fall since his, his suicide. So it's, it's an interesting sort of question of like the disillusioned pioneer. You know, we hear always about the happy halutzim dancing around and dancing the hora, but it was really, really hard. They didn't have enough to eat. They had dysentery. They had malaria. They were working this very untenable land in the Galilee that were sold to them by Arab landowners because it was known as like completely infertile land to, to grow anything on. Um, it was incredibly hot. You know, he'd come from this like privileged middle-class family in, in, in Austria. He was among mostly Galician Jews, um, you know, that spoke Hebrew and Yiddish and, you know, just learning Hebrew himself. Um, not very many German Jew, German speaking Jews around. So, and there was actually a phenomenon of suicide. There were a lot of young people who did commit suicide in those years a phenomenon might be too big of a world, but enough that there are several suicide graves in this beautiful uh, cemetery where he's buried in Kinneret Cemetery. And, um, you know, many people went back in those years in the 1920s. Like it was really, really, really hard <laughs> to stick around. Yeah. So anyway, it's sort of a side story, but it, it kind of it brings me back. So I, I did have a bit of a, after I graduated college, I kind of had a four way out of journalism and into academia and thought I might kind of go the route of studying, you know, the issue of the early settlement in Palestine and then ended up coming back to Israel, making Aliyah, and found my way back to journalism in Jerusalem and worked for, the, worked for the Associated Press, the AP, the American News Agency, and was kind of thrown in the deep end. It was uh, 1997. I remember my first week of work, there had been a Jordanian soldier that had opened fire on a group of schoolgirls on this place called the Island of Peace. And so King Hussein, had, it was the day I, my first day of the job, he had come to Israel to play condolence calls to the families of these girls, which is you know, kind of hard to imagine that happening today, right? Both the, both the attack was awful, but also the gesture of having 
you know, the King of Jordan inside Israel. It's hard to imagine today. Um, and then that was the beginning of that week. And the end of that week, there was a suicide bombing in Tel Aviv. Um, and I had just, at that time, I was commuting between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And I had just gotten off the bus when I heard the news. And I remember hopping on my bicycle and racing to the scene of this cafe that had just been the site of this bombing. And it was chaotic. And it was the first time I had seen, you know, blood on the pavement and the police tape go up. And it was, um, it was, it was traumatic, you know, it was a, it was a young journalist. And, um, and I remember being climbing up a few stories to a building facing the, the cafe and my editor at the time screaming on the phone to me, Dina, the baby, the story is the baby because a baby, it was Purim and this baby girl um, was found on the pavement, luckily fine. But next to her was her mother who was, had been killed. And there were two other young women. There are three young women, I think all in their 30s, were killed in that attack. It was March 97. And so I then found myself going to the hospital to wait for the father of this baby to come collect her. But it took a while because first he was um, the morgue, identifying his wife's body. It was this horrible moment that you never, I, I did not want to be there for, you know, to get a comment from the father. So although the journalist in me should have wanted the comment, the person in me was very happy when he walked right by and said, I'm not speaking to any reporters. But I very vividly remember going back to the cafe, back to my bicycle. I had chained it, you know, locked it to some tree. And at that point, the streets were empty. And I got to my bicycle and I was so overwhelmed by that whole day that I burst into tears. And I thought, oh, this was, this is really hard. <laughs> this is going to be hard being a journalist covering this crazy place. And I thought, oh, but you know, I'll go into work at the AP. You know, it was, I think it was a Thursday. It was a Friday, right? So I thought, okay, I'll go back to work. You know, Israel work week is Sunday. I'll go back and people will ask me how I am. They'll ask me how I covered this, how this was. And nobody did. And it was just sort of de rigueur. It was normal. I mean, other journalists that I've worked for were much more seasoned than I. And yeah, and only later in more recent years where I've learned more about journalism and trauma and the importance of understanding that journalists also go through trauma by covering and being in a sense, first, first level responders themselves. I mean, you're not responding in terms of giving medical aid, but you're responding and getting the story out, right? And, and there's also a cost, a personal cost to be paid if you don't know how to take care of yourself. But yeah, that was my introduction to work at the AP with that week of King Hussein and then I covered by a suicide bombing. And then I went on to cover, you know, it was, it was a very tense time and there were unfortunately a lot of bombings going on and lots of funerals and lots of clashes and all of the sort of the hopes for the peace Efforts of Oslo were kind of unraveling before all of our eyes, you know, so it was, it was hard work emotionally, but it also, um, I remember living in Jerusalem and wondering if I was walking towards the site of a bombing or away from the site of a bombing. I would stand in front of a bookstore looking through the glass, wondering, is it going to shatter now in a few minutes? You know, is it safer to be here? Or is it safer to be there? Yeah, but it was also an incredible school of journalism, and I worked with really capable you know, smart, seasoned people and learned how to cover things with a combination of, I hope, heart and, and, and heart, but also facts and learning how to contextualize very difficult situations and, you know, bring it to a foreign audience and, you know, being able to explain what I was seeing, but also being able to give the backdrop of the history as much as one could in these, you know, 800 word articles. Um, but I also had a pretty free range to write about other things too, you know, culture, I ended up kind of developing a bit of a beat of like covering Holocaust survivors and their issues, you know, and, getting the right medical care, covering stories of Holocaust survivors who were in mental institutions and had breakdowns, I mean, all sorts of things um, about the reality, you know, of, of life afterwards for these survivors. And as much as I could, just sort of things that spun off that were not conflict related because you can't always cover the conflict. And although the conflict does color so much, even of the things that are not directly conflict related. Um, and then after about almost five years of that, I was feeling kind of ready for something new, which was Good that I got a phone call around then from uh, the same bureau chief that had called um, to me and said, the baby, the story's the baby, was then calling from New York to tell me, Dina, would you like to be based in South Africa to Joburg? Huh. So uh, it, was, uh, it was 2001, and I was, decided I was ready for a change. And I thought, oh, it'll be so much easier to write about things besides Arabs and Jews hating each other. I'll write about you now, know, now more happy things, you know? The conflict there, right. <laughs> It was after the apartheid had just ended, so it was really exciting to be at a place that was sort of building and creating a new society out of out of the old, um, and there was a lot of positivity. There was also a lot of, of course, historical baggage that, of course, is still part of the South African story. So I was covering Southern Africa. So I was based in Johannesburg, but I was covering 
all like 13 countries in Southern Africa. So that was Zimbabwe and Botswana and Namibia and Zambia. <laughs> so I learned a lot, but I was also, it was at the heart or the height of the AIDS pandemic in um, Sub-Saharan Africa. So I was suddenly reporting, I would say my main beats were HIV AIDS and also the unraveling of Zimbabwe to the north of South Africa um, under the dictator Robert Mugabe, who only recently was ousted from power. So that's what I was mostly writing about. Um, and also was lucky to, to interview Mandela a couple of times and he had just stepped down and he was uh, actually, yeah, so he was, he was still very much a present force in South Africa. And so I'll just share one quick story about that. There was um, a lot of controversy about how the government was handling the HIV crisis. There was a lot of HIV denial under his, under his successor, Tabo Mbeki, who said there was no connection between HIV and AIDS. And it was really like crazy town when it came to addressing the AIDS pandemic in, in, in South Africa, where at the time one in five adults were HIV positive. Anyway, there was, there was a press conference and Mandela was brought in and I was there kind of asking tough questions to the deputy president at the time, Jacob Zuma. And uh, at the end, Mandela said, said to me, you are very brave. You show no fear. And I said, you are the bravest man in the world. What are you talking about? But it was, a, it was really an honor to have even a little bit of connection with him to see, and, 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 and to see like that kind of leadership, that kind of leadership that I think is so lacking, that kind of person to kind of see beyond and try to figure out how to move beyond the conflict. So uh, how did you get from there, South Africa, all the way now back to where you are in Israel? And where else did you work in the intervening years? And I do want to fast forward to the podcast in a minute. So give us kind of the thumbnail sketch of where you were in the interim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I worked for AP, in, you know, as I said, in, in Jerusalem and in Johannesburg. And then I came back to Israel. I started working for JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, as their Israel correspondent, um, you know, covering both news and features. And I did that for several years. Um, and then I ended up getting a, I was also ready for sort of a bit of a change. And I applied and was lucky to be accepted as a fellow at Harvard, um, the Neiman Fellowship, which is a prestigious fellowship for journalists, where you get this incredible opportunity to spend a year at Harvard and um, get paid to like study and learn and be in really truly fellowship with journalists in this program from other countries and also from the States. And that was an amazing opportunity. So I did that. And then my family and I stayed on in Boston for what turned out to be six years. And I worked for, I taught journalism and ran a graduate program in, in, in digital journalism at Northeastern University, um, but very much always felt the pull back to Israel and our kids were getting bigger. And I felt like we felt like every year we'd push off the decision and every year the kids were getting older and at a certain point we had to make a decision and kind of you know, bravely or stupidly make plunge back <laughs> to the shock of the family um, who thought we would never go back because most times, you know, one does not. Um, yeah. And then so started working for Haaretz, um, which I've been doing some work for from Boston, worked for Haaretz and also for the Christian Science Monitor. And then I had always had this big crush on audio. I'd always loved audio. And when I was at Northeastern, I was lucky enough to learn some audio basics from some pros who'd come to lecture our students. And sort of out of the blue came this call from Hadassah. They were looking for a host for this idea of a podcast. Didn't have a name yet. Didn't have a full format yet. But the idea was to bring into conversation to uh, an Israeli and Palestinian and Jew and, or Jew and Arab to come and speak about their connection and friendship in some way. And that evolved into the show, which we know today, called The Branch. We're now, you know, uh, a year to the show. And we come out monthly. And the idea was to take it from beyond just a conversation, but actually kind of this American lifestyle, you know, or more reported narrative story where we go in and talk to people, but also talk to them in their own environment. So, for example, one of the stories is, you know, the first episode was set in, the, in an Arab, the Arab Jewish theater in Jaffa. And so the story was about the, these two musicians who are friends. Um, one is actually an Orthodox Jew who plays the oud and sings classical Arabic music so beautifully that Abu Mazen, the Palestinian um, head of the Palestinian Authority, has invited him to Ramallah to, to play and to meet him in person. When he travels, he apparently listens to Tzvi Heskel. That's his name. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah. His very close and long-term uh, work with a, an Arab citizen of Israel who is a, uh, is a pianist and also they have a band together. So the story was about their relationship and their connection, but it was also taking place in the theater. So the music of the theater and of the, of the play they were putting on, Steve was starring as, a, as an Egyptian, famous Egyptian singer. 
uh, in this particular play. So yeah, so it's, it's kind of going into the environment and getting the sounds and the, and the feel of that place that they work and they, they connect together in. So there's just, you know, it's also it's had episodes on um, episode on a bilingual Jewish, uh, bilingual Hebrew Arabic school in Jerusalem. So spend time in the school and getting the sounds of the school and the classrooms, and then also interviewing very in-depth two teachers who work together there. So also in the Shuk, an episode, episode on Machane Yehuda and the Shuk there, and a, a, a pair that run a restaurant in the Shuk. Um, so yeah, so every episode is a, is a different pair and a, and a glimpse of their life and their world and their work together. How did they find you? I mean, there's lots of journalists in Israel. I'm sure uh, you stand out, but you know, why, why did they pick you? How did they discover you even? Yeah, I think I owe credit to somebody, uh, someone who was working at Hadassah and had heard about me from a friend of theirs. And um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know how many people they spoke to as well. But yeah, I mean, it was lucky they took a chance on me. And also, I didn't have an audio background, but I just right. found that it was really, for me also, I think, you know, working in the field for as long as I have, and I love print and I love writing, and I feel like there's nothing more than with a pencil and notebook in my hand and then going back and making it into a story. But to be have audio and to have voices and to like put a microphone in front of someone's mouth or face and, and hear where they sound, where they express themselves and to get the sound of the, the cook in Machani Yehuda making the oil, you know, frying up the onions at, at 4.30 in the morning, you know, <laughs> before the crowds arrive and to hear the sound of the school kids come in and the, the sound of their rolling their backpacks across the floor. It's hard to compete with that. And it's so intimate and it's so present. And even though this, the stories can go out, you know, across the world, you alone are sitting, you know, in your car or holding your laundry, listening to those voices. And I feel like, you know, we, especially covering, you know, the Israel-Palestinian conflict and in, in, in just daily life, things, people can come very, very one-dimensional. And we can forget that they're actually really complicated people and, and complex people and very, very human people. And when you hear their voice, you can't dismiss the other side. You can't, they're real to you, you hear them. And you hear that it's not just a line they're saying, it's genuine. Yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's been really a great journey getting these, finding these stories. And I keep thinking, oh, I'm going to run out of stories, like how many people are actually working together and doing interesting things. But always more, I think like there's always more people, there's always more things to explore. And so many different levels, whether it's musicians working together, whether it's high tech people, or whether it's, you know, hopefully a new episode will be about uh, youth movement in Jerusalem, you know, and they just came back from northern ireland together i mean there's just there's there's a lot of people doing interesting things and it's to quote one of our listeners you know one day the day will hopefully come where there's some kind of real peace in the region and there will be politicians who sign that agreement but it will be people on the ground building that new reality and living in what we call shared society um together that will be the basis of that like which without that you don't have anything and um you know the word we use today is shared society in, inside israel it's not coexistence Coexistence kind of gives the impression of people living in their own spheres. They're existing. They're not inter-existing, right? But shared society is about living together in full equality, Palestinian, Arab citizens, Jewish citizens together, you know, in equality and in dignity together. And so looking at people who are, who are doing that. Why did Hadassah specifically start this podcast? I mean, it's a hospital, you know, a women's organization, but why Hadassah and, and, and generally sort of what's the goal? Yeah. I mean, I think the nexus came from people inside Hadassah who, you know, first of all, the, the, it, in some ways the, the podcast is a, is a mirror image of what happens in the hospital because in the hospital, the hospitals rather, they have two hospitals, you know, you have uh, Arab and Jewish doctors, Arab and Jewish nurses, Arab and Jewish patients, you know, who function together every day without regard to their backgrounds. Right. So, and things mostly, most and that's not perfect, but most of the time things work, you know, right? And, it, and it's a place where you kind of, the conflict is sort of checked at the door, right? And so people live in a way that you can sort of would like them to live elsewhere too, not just when they need, you know, healthcare. So this idea of sort of what, what does that look like outside the doors of Hadassah? Is that happening elsewhere? And, and also in some ways as a response to, you know, when you're covering or you're reading the news from Israel, it tends to be the headline version, sometimes the clickbaity, unfortunately, in our era, headline version of the country. And you aren't sort of getting the more of the nuance of the stories of people actually who are trying to break through paradigms and are trying to connect. I mean, Israel is a really segregated country. There's just no way around it. You know, Jews live here, Arabs live there. The, the, the most, you know, my kids go to a school where they're, you know, it's entirely Jewish that's the way of the world mostly in Israel, but there are these points of intersection. So what do they look like? You know, 
um, and what is it like to tell those stories? And, and also where, who are people who are trying to bring people together? One of my, my um, favorite episodes takes place in an Arab village called Jizr Azarka, which has one of the most, if not the most beautiful beach in the entire country. And, uh, but it's also a very poor village and it's, it's been plagued by lots of crime. And it's a place that there's no access to from the road. It's, it goes right by uh, Highway 2, the coast, the main coastal highway, but there's no exit to it, which is part of the problem of, you know, even like housing and land discrimination against Arabs. There's no even direct access to it. You have to kind of go through other places to get to it. But in inside is this village, and um, there's now a, a combined sort of Jewish-Israeli and Arab-Israeli effort to create a guest house there so that people come visit both international tourists, but also Jewish Israeli tourists to come into the village and to understand it and to get a sense of it and have home visits and families there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think when, when, when the podcast began, both for Hadass and for me, we didn't know where it would take us, you know, but it's taken us to some really interesting corners of the country. Does doing this podcast make you feel more hopeful about the future of, of relations or would you say that in some ways, these stories are the exceptions of integration, so to speak, that prove the rule of disconnect and discord. Right. That's a really good question. I have a friend who likes to say that I'm on the hope beat, you know, <laughs> yeah, covering these sorts of stories in the podcast. Um, yeah. I mean, I think overall they, you know, although they can feel exceptional, they do give me more hope because it shows the reality of people working things out, you know, as we said, it's a tagline of the show, you know, working together, even when it's complicated. And I would say it's almost always complicated and seeing how people do it in different ways. Sometimes by shutting out the politics entirely. My most recent episode was about two physicians who work at uh, the Hadassah's. They're both gynecologists and they both work at the um, rape crisis center at the hospital, which is a really impressive place where the, the, the patient is put very much at the center of care. And it's all about reducing the trauma and giving them back their dignity. And in this case, you have two physicians, one who is the daughter of Russian refuseniks who came over when she was a child from St. Petersburg and has very, is religious and has very right-wing political opinions. And the other is a Palestinian Israeli citizen who, when she's not at the hospital, is the chairperson of um, Physicians for Human Rights, and she works in the West Bank at women's clinics there. And so they decided for the, in their case, they don't talk about politics. They think it would help nothing at all because they, they do come from different points of view, but they're focused on women and women's health, and that's their joint mission, and that's how they work together, and they forge this very special friendship. And others, like these two feminists who I interview for a story called, an episode called The Sisterhood, who both come together uh, in their work on feminism in Israel, and both helped lead a recent, really impressive day of protest against violence against women and against both domestic violence and other forms of violence where women are actually killed in Israel. The numbers have gone up in recent years. Um, and there was so much outrage uh, over the case of two deaths, very, very close proximity of two young girls, that there, was a, there were protests in the streets. And it was a combined effort of Jewish and Arab feminists together who put that together in December. And so I interviewed two of the women who were part of that and they talk about everything. They don't shy away at all from talking about their histories and about their, um, about the version of the painful differences between their families. In the one case, you know, uh, the, the Jewish feminist, her name is Hamutal Gori, and her father was Haim Gori, who was, was an Israel, one of Israel's national poets, in large part from the poetry he wrote around the 1948 war and about, you know, the comrades he lost. And then on the other side, there was Samach Salemi, who was a um, prominent feminist and whose parents were expelled from their village by the same Palmach forces that her, her father, you know, was part of. And yet she developed a very close relationship with her father. Um, it was conflicted in some ways, but she loved her father, who was uh, um, Hamutal's father, who was this Zionist icon and poet. And it, they get very much into the complexity and the difficulty of, of sustaining that friendship. But, but by talking about it and by addressing it, they feel like they are moving forward, you know, um, for the sake of themselves, but also for shared society. So it, it's interesting. There's different people have very different ways of, of connecting um, and dealing with their identities and the stories that I tell. But, um, you know, although they may, they may feel exceptional, I feel like there is a hunger for more connection. You know, there are more Jewish Israelis than ever um, taking Arabic classes, uh, language classes. Um, the school that I reported on, the Hand in Hand School, which is a network of schools across Israel, they teach in Arabic and in Hebrew. There's a long, long waiting list to get into those schools, you know? So it can be dismissed as fringe, you know, these moments of intersection. But I feel like the, the bigger picture is there is, you know, and, and, and despite some of the politics, of course, and the right wing shift of the country, there's still this, this hunger to sort of know each other. And I think also, 
you know, every year that passes, there's more openness and understanding that, you know, there's room for everybody's stories here, you know, not just one side of the story. And that by getting to both sides of the narrative, by sharing those narratives, um, it's not a competition. It's not a race. It's about understanding each other so that we can live together. So we keep blocking out each other's stories and going, nah, 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 nah. I don't want to hear, you know, hear no more. I don't want to hear. I don't want to see it. I just want to talk about my story and my victimhood and my identity. We're never going to get unstuck. You know, like these are two peoples living in the same place. How are we going to move forward? You know, not that anyone has a strong answer, but, but really getting to know each other on a deep level. And that's what working together and going to school together means. It's not about a coexistence group that comes together once a month around some shared idea. Um, that's fine, but it's not going to really break through and make deep, meaningful relationships. Like coming to the office every day together or working on a feminist campaign together or making music together and a band together. That's what making a difference is about. And, and, and they, they, they are transformed. They, they, through each other's connections with each other, are transformed by that. Um, and it affects not just themselves, but their families. Like the story of the, uh, the journalist based in Israel and the journalist based in Gaza. I mean, their story is a story of 30 years of working together, of saving each other's lives in some cases. You know, Sa'ud, the Palestinian Gazan journalist, like uh, Jonathan has, was in it was at some event and Jonathan fainted and almost you know, could have been crushed by the crowd and Sa'ud pulls him out and splashes water in his face and gets him back together and also protects him in some really dicey situations reporting in Gaza, right? On the other hand, when Sa'ud had heart problems and needed to get surgery, it was Jonathan that connected him with the hosp- a doctor at Hadassah Hospital to get the surgery he needed that was potentially life-saving, you know? And when there was a, when one of the many conflicts in Gaza, the families were worried about each other and concerned about each other and um, in touch with each other. And Jonathan's wife packed up a huge uh, package of supplies and Jonathan drove down to Gaza with them for this family, you know, and, and their children know each other. And, you know, and, and if anything, you know, I, I do have fear that the relationships like that will go extinct as long as the political process stalls and there is no connection and there is no progress. I mean, how many families from Gaza city and families from Tel Aviv have a personal connection. Count on one hand, if not even, or one finger, you know? So I have both hope, but I also have a sense of dread too, that there is not enough of this. Um, and in part because, you know, it's because the conflict is just, is, is still very, very much stuck and I'm in lacking leadership to make it unstuck. What kind of pushback do you get from either side? Do, does anyone accuse you know you the, the podcast really not not you personally but anybody accuse this enterprise of, sort of whitewashing or painting a rosy picture and not really giving the truth i could see that from the israeli you know more, more right-wing perspective which i'm much more familiar with but i imagine that there could be a left-wing iteration of that same claim do you get that yeah. pushback and how do you respond yeah, I haven't gotten anything directly, but I, I, I know it's out there, you know, and I know, you know, I can even tell from the silence of some friends I don't know who follow the stuff, but, you know, don't want to say anything because they're, you know, they, they, there's the sense of, like, yeah, are you, are you, I guess you would call like shared society washing, you know, coexistence washing, like everything's happy and kumbaya, you know, you're presenting a false story when, when there's so much suffering and there's so much negativity, why are you focusing on the positive, on, on the left side and the right side, not wanting to talk about integration, not want to talk about stories of people searching for a third way out, right? So although I haven't had those comments. Well, I would also say on the right side, I would imagine that there might be people who would say, look, this is a society that's steeped in hatred, that, you know, there's, there's a deep culture of education towards hate and, you know, and really there's not a desire from the Palestinian side for peaceful coexistence or shared society or whatever, and that these are not reflective of, of the real body politic in that culture. That would probably, I would guess, be the pushback from the right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the, again, I haven't heard the direct criticism, but I can totally imagine that being a critique. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, my, my response to that, I guess, would be that, you know, you, you can focus on the only the, the parts of there is there is there's, there's no way around it there is a definitely anti-normalization campaign you know among the palestinians like let's not let's not you know it's not an even their argument is there's not an even playing field israelis are in control israelis are in power we can't go and have these little these like happy circles of coexistence and getting to know each other when in gaza there's another you know 15 people that were killed on the border that day or whatever it is um and on the right side saying you know th- this is not the main story let's not focus on on the stories of people trying to break through out of that paradigm 
but I mean, I guess I'd say to that, you know, like, they, but, there, but it is, there is, it is happening. And even though it's quietly happening um, in some cases, I mean, there's also a distinction, right? There's what's happening inside Israel between Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel. There's also what's happening between Israelis and Palestinians. And there is a lot less between Israelis and Palestinians. That's true. But for example, the story, you know, of, um, you know, a youth group in Jerusalem, they're coming from East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, that there, there's connection there, right? And there's people who really, again, have this hunger for something different. Um, and I think the leaders try to kind of play off the fear factor. And I think that becomes a dominant narrative, but there is another story to be told. And that's what the branch is trying to say. There is another story to be told. In terms of numbers, it may not be as great as the other side of the story, but it is happening. So you can't ignore it and you should look at it and you should actually draw ideally some sort of inspiration from it as well, because there are people doing really interesting and I'm doing things on purpose. It's just, they're just living their daily lives. You know, they're just, in some cases, you know, they, they have run an ice cream company together, you know, but like, so one of my stories is about Buza, an ice cream company that's run by a kibbutznik and by an Arab chef in, in the North of Tarshicha. And the factory is on, on the kibbutz. And, but you know, it might smell, sound like a small step, but at the Buza stores, which are in the North and also in Tel Aviv, the signs are in Arabic and they're in Hebrew. You know, and you don't see that very often in Jewish Israel, you know, signs in Arabic and in Hebrew. Like, and you don't hear about stories of people who are business people together, making, making a business together. And they're hiring Arabs and they're hiring Jews and they're, you know, in the factory floor, you see a mix of people. Um, and again, it's not to say that everything's perfect, but, but, they're, but they're, it, it shows that it doesn't have, people don't, it doesn't have to be de facto conflict. It doesn't have to be tension always. Um, and like always, when you have human beings you get to know each other real friendships develop and the stereotypes are broken down. I mean, even, you know, the ice cream shop at Tarshicha talking to the young woman behind the counter, they, they had grown up right next to each other. But because one was in a Jewish town, the one was in the Arab town, they never ever had any interaction with the other before. And now they were scooping ice cream for hours and hours together. And they're, they're talking about the music they like together and that the, the studies that they're studying, you know, what, what they're studying in university, what their plans are. And they're not, they're not nameless, faceless others to each other. And that's really, really important. How has doing this podcast changed you? Oh, how's it changed me? Interesting question. Um, <laughs> well, I think it just made this issue, especially when it comes to Arab citizens of Israel, being more attuned to their lives and what they are going through as a minority in the country and the feeling of recently, especially under various legislation feeling like more and more like second class citizens so kind of getting a sense of what their life is and what it's like navigating 19 for them 2018 uh, for them so cutting my eyes more open to sort of their experience i would say but also to the experience of the jewish israelis getting to know them and working with them and um and oh yeah i was gonna say not all not everyone is you know college educated that we uh and ever you know sort of of speaking the shared society language and vocabulary it's also been interesting you know the shook episode for example like touching on moments of you know the the people that in the story are kind of like they have like a brother or sister relationship they uh, one is the the woman is the owner of the restaurant and the palestinian from east jerusalem is the cook that she's worked with forever or the last few years at least and the one hand are very playful with each other but when it comes to talking about you know what does it mean to share this country it got tense between them you know and you see that tension and you see how they kind of try to work it out but, they, you know, and then it was also interesting to see how being in conversation, how it, and being in, in each other's orbit, how they learned so much about life for the other. I mean, um, Mahdi, the worker, the, the cook, he had a house that was built that was demolished because it was, it was demolished by the Israeli authorities because they didn't have the legal permits. And she goes and helps him. She's very right wing herself. She lives in a settlement herself. But she went to Tel Aviv and helped him try to find a lawyer to fight back, you know, and she saw sort of what his hardships were like. And she also, during a particularly tense time in, in the city, um, when the, the, the stabbing attacks were going on, she was surprised to hear that his mother kept calling and asking, are you okay, Madi? And did you get to work okay? And she's like, why is your mother, you're Palestinian. What do you, what do you have to fear? No one's going to kidnap you and put you in the back of a car or stab you. And she didn't realize that he also experiences, you know, profiling by the police and lots of suspicion when he walks around. And it's the fact that he, he feels so unsafe coming to work in West Jerusalem and he'll, although his wages are not great, will spend a chunk of them and tons of time taking a taxi from East Jerusalem to West Jerusalem because he's afraid of what, what happened to him. So her eyes being opened, you know, to him, you know, but he, and his eyes being opened, you know, that she has two kids who are soldiers 
so, so normally a, a, a Palestinian from East Jerusalem would not necessarily have particularly positive feelings toward Israeli soldiers, right? But he's gotten to know these Israeli soldiers, both the ones in her own family, her kids who he's gotten to know and he loves. And, you know, there are Israeli soldiers who come every day to their restaurant and eat at their tables. And mm -hmm. so it's, again, it kind of breaks down the tension, you know, and it breaks down the barriers because they see each other, not just as, you know, people in uniform and you are in that category and you're in that category, but it takes them from the one dimensional to the three dimensional. And so, you know, even though they might not agree on po the politics and the, and, and the justice of what's going on around them, they, they see each other as people and they, they have meals at each other's homes. They know each other's families. They're worried about each other. They're concerned about each other. And um, they're not professional shared society people doing shared society projects. They're just <laughs> living their lives, you know, and they try to make a living and they have the same, a lot of the same challenges and they, and they support each other in a really real genuine way. In closing, Dina, what are some of the, uh, the episodes you're working on now that are coming up in the next you know, coming months? I know one was just released. What are, what are some of the things that you're working on now? And then, and then finally, how can people find the podcast, learn more about it, and, and learn about you and so forth online? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, working on upcoming stories include um, all goes well, a story on a Jewish uh, Israeli children, um, teenagers from Jerusalem and their counterparts in East Jerusalem, Palestinian teenagers who are working together in a youth movement um, and um, doing really interesting we had a summer camp together. They went to Shabbat. They were together for Shabbat services, but also services at a mosque. I mean, just like learning and spent time in, um, in Belfast, learning about the Northern Ireland conflict and sort of lessons they can draw from that. A uh, story of a band in uh, Jaffa called System Ali, which is made up of Arabs and Jews and Russian speakers. They, they sing in Arabic and Hebrew and Yiddish and some, and some Amharic from Ethiopia. I mean, it's a real hodgepodge. And they are both a reflection of their changing neighborhood and also their sort of search for justice through music and through uh, hip hop and rap. Also hoping, hoping uh, for some, some high profile musicians. We're not going to name any names, but that, that will work out. <laughs> Give us a tease. Come on, Dina. <laughs> Let us break some news here. <laughs> We're in touch with Achino Amini and about, an, uh, about a joint interview with them. We're both world-class musicians. Um, yeah, and some, some other episodes we're excited about um, include uh, Lod, which is another Arab-Jewish mixed town and life in that city. So really kind of um, getting a focus on, on Jerusalem, which is where Hadassah is based, you know, so it's sort of their home, home turf. So getting you know, a closer look at things in Jerusalem, but also other parts of the country. And uh, they're bringing more stories of connection, but, but, but nuanced connection, like getting into, the, this is my answer to the critics on the left and the right, is not painting a, a picture that is, you know, overly rosy or over, over, overly dark, but like really getting into the reality of, of what it is like to make this happen. Um, because that's, that's what's real. I think podcasts that tell the truth are stories or podcasts and stories that tell that have legs, not stories of propaganda on either side, but stories of just what does it look like on the ground? What does it look like together to be in a shared society together? Um, and of course, the stories behind those people, which are always so rich and interesting. And you know from your work, like everybody, you scratch a person and you touch, touch on a million worlds. And um, to answer how it's changed me, I think it's just learning how to do more of these deep dives into people's backstories and lives, which are universally true. Like we, that is the DNA of all of us is stories. And everyone has these stories to tell. And these are stories that everyone has access to. So it's, for me, been really exciting to help have, give access to more people to these worlds. Where could people listen and, and read more and learn more? You can find The Branch um, on the Hadassah website, Hadassah backslash The Branch, I believe. And also on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and anywhere you have your favorite podcasts. And we'd love you to listen, you know, download us and listen to us and share um, and help spread the word because it's, you know, I think it's, uh, I think for people, it's, we're really, really well produced show as well. I mean, I, I don't, I do not bring this story at all by myself. I have two amazing producers. I'll give them a quick shout out, shout out. That's Josh Cross in New York, who's our uh, lead producer. And then I have a field producer named Skylar Inman, who's phenomenal. And together we, you know, figure out the scripts and record the stories and find the right music and find the right tone and the right narrative spine for each story. And so we work really hard on them and I would love more people to like have access to them and to hear them and to share them. And, you know, not just in Jewish circles, but in circles who care about, you know, conflict areas in general and how to break the script, how to move beyond what we've always been talking about and, and, and get to a better, higher place, hopefully. I can definitely attest that the, 
production value is outstanding and it's just a really pleasurable listen of course beyond being a very informative and eye-opening listen so dina thank you for that work and thank you so much for sharing your story the podcast story it's really uh, incredible inspiring and fascinating to be honest so dina craft thank you so much for joining us i'm just saying thank you so much thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to, to chat with you about it all this has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.